Well, thanks everyone for taking the time to be with us today in person. And for those who are watching online, I'm Dave Sattler, one of the pastors here at North Shore Alliance Church. Today, we continue our series, Lessons from the First Church, our trek through the thrilling, and as we'll learn today, also chilling Bible book of Acts. Acts recounts the story of how disciples of first century Jesus of Nazareth, buoyed by the reality of his resurrection, under the power of the Holy Spirit, they launch a revolution that in spite of great opposition, miraculously spreads throughout the then Roman dominated world. The book of Acts gives vital instructions on how we can participate in the mission of Jesus, It offers valuable insights on how we can relate to one another in church community. And Acts provides boots on the ground teaching on how to grow and live in relationship with Jesus. I believe there's much to learn here from the example of the first church. So where are we at in the story of Acts? We've covered the first four chapters just about. And I want to just do a brief summary for us this morning. Well, after Jesus ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes as promised at Pentecost. And Peter gets up and preaches at Pentecost and 3,000 people are saved and baptized and the church of Christ is born. Next, Peter and John are involved in healing a crippled beggar. Megan preached on this miracle last week. And after the healing, Peter preaches and again, many more put their faith in Jesus for salvation. Meanwhile, opposition begins to mount. Not appreciating the kerfuffle this is causing in the city and perhaps a little jealous, local Jerusalem religious authorities arrest Peter and John and chuck them in jail. And this garners the attention of the top temple officials, including the high priest before whom Peter stands up and proclaims salvation is found in no one else but Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And upon their release from prison, Peter and John return to their fellow Christ followers. And while they're praying, the place where they are meeting begins to shake, and they are all filled with the Holy Spirit and further emboldened to share the good news. Well, now that brings us to today's message, and we'll start today's message to warm us up with a little straw poll, and you'll have to vote by show of hands. You'll need to tally your answers in your head or on your paper, because there'll be a diagnostic at the end. Okay, so be ready. Here it is. Straw poll question number one. What storyline do you think makes for a better drama? A, dark conspiracies and hidden secrets exposed, or B, a rags-to-riches underdog story. How many of you vote for A? Right? How many of you vote for B? All right. Tally that. Number two, which vision do you prefer? A, a idealistic utopian vision of the church or a realistic, somewhat messy vision of the church? How many of you vote for A? Okay, a few of you. I think I'm probably in A category. I'm living B. Sorry. How many of you vote for B? All right. Okay, I'll leave that one. (laughs) Number three. When trying to make a favorable impression, do you tend to A, talk yourself up, embellished, or B, talk yourself down, underplay? 
Let's be honest here. How many of you vote for A? All right, how many of you vote for B? I want to say neither tactic is good, by the way. <laughs> All right, final. It's not really a straw poll question, but it's important. Name the artist who sings, Did you hear my covert narcissism disguised as altruism? Was it A, Bob Dylan, or B, Taylor Swift? How many of you vote for A? Old school, yeah. How many of you vote for B? New school, all right. If you answered A, B, A, B, this message is for you. The rest of you can just have a little nap. So before we, fit, we, we hit the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 5, and the chilling story of Ananias and Sapphira, we will start today at the end of Acts chapter 4. Here, Luke pens another four-verse summary paragraph, a tactic he's employed previously at the end of chapter 2, at another key transition point in the story post-Pentecost. And Dr. Luke's bird's-eye view gives us another extraordinary snapshot of the magnanimous and magnetic, almost utopian community of the first church. Let's read beginning this morning at Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the field and put it at the, bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, chapter 5, verse 1. A man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear, I'll bet, seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, it's hard to thank you for your word in a sermon like this. But I do thank you for your word. 
And I ask God now that you would come and move me out of the way and come and speak to us by your spirit. Spirit of God, would you fall fresh on our hearts and on our church and our pl- on this place today? And would you apply the truth of your word to us here this morning? God, we are hungry to hear from you. Would you come and speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. The first believers practiced the redistribution of wealth. United in heart and mind, the group of Christ's followers that had now grown to over 5,000 refused to see possessions as solely belonging to the individual. Their conviction, my stuff, is not my own. And this practice was motivated by the fundamental Christian belief that everything we have is God's and we are only stewarding or sharing what rightfully belongs to him. The strategy When a need arises, be willing to sell your land or property, bring the money from the sales to the apostles and allow them to distribute the funds to anyone in need. It's kind of similar to our coffee time ministry today. But there's a note here. Unlike communism or Marxism, which are political ideologies, this practice of the sharing of possessions was need-driven supervised by the prompting of the Holy Spirit and, and completely voluntary. Exhibit A, Barnabas sells his field. Luke's first case study introduces us to a man who will soon become a key figure in the story. Nicknamed Son of Encouragement, I love this nickname. And Barnabas brings the money from the sale of his property and he generously lays it at the apostles' feet. And here we see a beautiful real-life example of how the power of Jesus' resurrection and the presence of the Holy Spirit transforms people. God was so moving in and among the early church community, freeing people both from their attachment to things and freeing people from material need. Why, it says God's grace was so powerfully at work that there were no needy persons among them. Amazing. Exhibit B, Ananias and Sapphira pretend to be more generous than they actually were. To launch the next chapter, one filled with church growth, but also serious conflict from inside and out, Luke offers a second case study that is anything but beautiful. Ananias and Sapphira had also, it says, sold some land, but kept back for themselves some of the profit which would have been fine had they been upfront about it. Instead, the couple conspired to keep it a hidden secret. And now, I really can't believe I'm saying this, but it's here where modern philosopher Taylor Swift gets it right in her song, Antihero. Did you hear my covert narcissism disguised as altruism, she sings. I'm pretty sure Tay-Tay's lyric was inspired by her reading of Acts chapter five. I'm pretty sure I'll have to ask her. Contrast with Barnabas intended. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira is not their stinginess, but they're lying to appear more generous than they actually were. Covert narcissism disguised as altruism or spiritual showboating, which sadly leads to my own story. 
30 years ago, when I was a young pastor, I was rigorously studying for my ordination. In addition to frontline ministry work back then, ordination involved two plus years of reading, paper writing, and doctrinal work. And this all culminated in an interview where you were placed in a room around a big boardroom table with 12 veteran pastors who for an hour and a half grilled you with personal and theological questions. Well, I passed the interview, but in the days that followed, I came under the deep conviction of the Holy Spirit. For I had embellished, I had lied on one of the questions about my spiritual life. I'd made myself appear more spiritual than I really actually was. And this gnawed away at my heart. To find out what happened next, you'll have to wait till the end of the sermon. <laughs> Ananias and Sapphira didn't just lie to humans, but they lied to God. To Ananias, Peter declares, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. The real sin is that Ananias and Sapphira believe in their own sovereignty above God. In this way, they follow in the strain of all human sin from Adam and Eve to Abraham and Sarah to David and to Peter and to you and to me today. Arrogantly attempting to make an end run around God never works out well for any of us. So what drives your actions? Too often, for me at least, I am far more concerned about what other people think than what God thinks. When the heat is on, when I'm caught, when I need to make a good impression, my actions are driven more by keeping up appearances or trying to please other people rather than God. And I wonder, does sinning against God mean anything to us anymore? Truthfully, I find my worry about my reputation with others is far greater than my desire to please or not offend God. And Peter issues this much-needed reminder to Ananias when he's caught in sin that his first offense is against God. And so, too, for us. In the aftermath, great fear breaks out, I'll bet. Interesting, this is the first time that Luke uses the term church. The whole church, he says, was seized with reverent fear. Now the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira ought never to be celebrated. Their example should not be employed flippantly by church leaders to guilt or coerce people into godly behavior. This is not the intent here. At a time of tremendous momentum for the church, instead the story of Ananias and Sapphira issues a clarion warning on the destructiveness of sin. And more importantly, it reminds us that God is God and we are not. In our day, it feels to me like we've lost some of this holy sense of reverence for God. This story raises so many questions. I do want to make a quick attempt to tackle a few. The first is this. Why are Ananias and Sapphira given no opportunity to repent? I don't know. Most often, God is patient, it says in the Bible, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So let me just say, this is not how God typically works. 
And still, we do know that lying or deceit violates trust at the deepest level and must always be treated as serious business by the people of God. Second, how come God's judgment here is so harsh? While this verdict is certainly the exception rather than the norm, this story depicts a distant world in which sin is taken very seriously. Ananias and Sapphira were dealt with, were severely dealt with, one scholar says, because the way they attempted to reach their goals was so diametrically opposed to the whole thrust of the gospel that to allow it to go unchallenged would have set the entire mission of the church off course. Do you know that later in Acts, there's another account, only one other, of quick divine judgment. It seems King Herod, who's persecuting believers, fancies himself as God or a God, which results in his sudden death in Acts chapter 12. And it's notable that it's Herod's arrogance, too, that draws the acute ire of God. Third question, what happened to the beautiful church? Short answer, whenever you get people together this side of eternity, it's always somewhat messy, people. Acts is not an attempt to sanitize the early church or polish it up for show. Prior to this, yes, just about everything in the first church had come up roses and rainbows. Yet, to camp only on the beauty does a disservice to history and sets a bar that's easily dismissible when it comes to any takeaways for Christ followers today. To expose the messiness of church life simply makes it real and more relatable to us. It's time now to land the plane on some application points. And I offer three takeaways for us today. First is this. We mustn't be led astray by Satan's half-truths. Let me just say, buckle your seatbelts for these applications. No surprise that Satan shows up just as God is moving in the church. Ananias and Sapphira are lured in by Satan's shiny bait, selling your possessions and giving the proceeds away is good, the enemy says. Why not? Even keep a little for yourself. No one will find out. There's a way you can pocket some of the cash and still look good before God and your fellow churchgoers. First Peter 5, 8 warns, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's why Peter asks Ananias this probing question, how has Satan so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Though he is a defeated enemy, between now and his pending ultimate defeat when Jesus comes back again, Satan still tries to trip us up. However, I want you to know this this morning, our enemy is not all-powerful or all-knowing. To use a hockey analogy, Satan is not on the ice. He's in the penalty box with a game misconduct, but he's clamoring for attention. He's talking tough. He's attempting to plant in our heads seeds of fear, doubt, and confusion. And it is very important that we remain alert for Satan loves to sell us too on his subtle yet phony half-truths. Consider some examples. God gave you desires, so every desire you have must be good. Well, yes, God gives us desires. 
However, our sin skews those desires so that every desire we feel is not good. We need God's help to sift our natural desires, which ones are bad and which ones are good. And we need God to shape and form his godly desires in us. Consider another half-truth of Satan. You're a guilty sinner and you should be ashamed of yourself. That's another phony half-truth that Satan uses to attack our identity. True, we are all, all of us, guilty sinners. But shame is never a tactic that God employs. No, God freely offers his forgiveness to everyone who is willing to receive it. So we never have to sink in shame. Another subtle half-truth. God blesses you when you're good and curses you when you're bad. Well, life on our planet is not nearly that simple or straightforward. The God of the Christian story is far more than a mere cosmic scorekeeper. Yes, God appreciates it when we do good. But by our good behavior, we cannot make God love us more. And by our bad behavior, we can't cause God to love us any less. Here's the point. It's at the cross of Jesus where we are grounded in the full and beautiful truth. And here it is. We are all sinners in need of a savior and God loves us more than we could ever imagine. This is meant to be etched in our hearts. This is God's full and beautiful truth. We are all sinners in need of a savior and God loves us more than we could ever imagine. Amen. Point number two, we must see the wider scope of God's character. We commit biblical malpractice when we take an isolated story like this one that troubles us and don't look at the bigger picture. Do you know that the dominant narrative of the Bible is the story of God's loving kindness, his incredible mercy, and his amazing grace poured out for all creation? Take, for example, the Hebrew word hesed, which means God's steadfast love that endures forever. Hesed is attached to God alone and mentioned 147 times just in the book of Psalms. Psalm 23 famously concludes, God, surely your goodness and your love and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And here the word translated love or mercy is hesed, God's steadfast love that endures forever. It appears 146 more times in the Psalms. Then in the New Testament, God the Son, Jesus, is presented as the ultimate loyal and loving human. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 4 describes it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, that word again, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Simply put, God does all of this for us just because that's who God is. He's loving, he's generous, he's merciful, and eternally loyal to his promises and to his people. We all have ideas about who God is and how God works. 
Some thoughts are ingrained in us by our negative life experiences that have led us to wrongly conclude things like God is distant and doesn't care about me. Perhaps other dark narratives stem from our church upbringing or hardline fundamentalist teachings we've received that have led us to fixate on thoughts like God is angry and out to get me. These days, much of our thinking about God is perpetuated by the cultural narratives all around us that we subtly buy into, like, I need to try harder to earn God's favor. People of North Shore Alliance Church, may God open our eyes to see the fuller picture of God's character. Romans 8 verse 16 says, the spirit, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are, as Anne prayed this morning, God's children. Do you know that one of the main tasks of the Holy Spirit is to remind Christ's followers of our identity that we are dearly loved children of our Heavenly Father? It is so easy to lose sight of God's love for us. And Holy Spirit, I invite you now to come and minister the love of the Father right here, right now. God, may we, your people, see and experience the fuller and wider scope of your character, including your sweet and eternal loving kindness poured out on us today. Come, Holy Spirit. Third and final application is this. Be certain and grateful. We know the judge. It's hard, I know, but we mustn't write judgment out of the biblical script. And the case of Ananias and Sapphira stands as a stark reminder that there will one day be an accounting for all. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Which takes us back to my story. With the Spirit's prompting, I eventually found the courage to call up the district superintendent to confess that I had lied in my ordination interview. Surprised, he heard my confession and he told me he'd get back to me soon with a verdict. Of course, every time my phone rang thereafter, I braced myself for the judgment. Mercifully, God didn't strike me dead. Then finally, weeks later, later, the district superintendent called back. And he informed me that my willingness to confess and repent only further supported the committee's decision to recommend me for ordination. Thank you, God. And you can imagine my relief. Years ago... <laughs> Not finished yet. <laughs> Years ago, on our trip to Israel, our guide and professor Jack Beck stopped us halfway on our trek down the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. Here's a picture. From there, one can peer down into the Kidron Valley, the place where many believe Jesus will one day return to take up his position as judge. And in his book, Along the Road, Jack writes this, to be sure, Jesus is a judge who will determine where we spend eternity. To be sure, we are all guilty as charged. But this Jesus, the one who is my judge, is also my defense attorney. Even more than that, 
He is my savior who suffered and died in my place, absorbing the punishment for my sin. People of North Shore Alliance Church, do you know the judge? Do you know the judge? To open your heart and life to Jesus is the most important decision one could ever make. Instead of fear, great comfort is ours when we truly come to know and trust in relationship. Jesus, our loving Savior and judge. Amen. I'd like to invite our prayer ministry people to take their places. I believe Clive and Debbie will be in the balcony. Isabel and Gary will be over here at the exit. Invite the worship team to come. As God is speaking to you this morning, I encourage you to respond to him. Perhaps God has put something on your heart today that's something you would like prayer for. Our prayer ministry teams would love to pray with you and pray for you. I encourage you to slip out even during our worship time. If God is speaking to you, Listen, follow, step out. Our prayer team would love to pray with you. Let's stand now as we respond in worship.